Well, good morning and welcome to Convergent Church. We're so grateful that you've taken time out of your busy weekend to prioritize the assembling of gathering with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If it's your first time here, welcome. My name is Dan, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here at Convergent. And if you don't know much about us, I'd say that we're a group of ordinary people who struggle through this broken world, just like you. We're a people who struggle, who stumble, who sin, but believe in an extraordinary God who not only desires to meet with us, but who delights in us, who sent his son on our behalf to redeem us that we could be made whole yet again. Well, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Galatians 5. We're going to be in verses 13 through 15 today. This morning, we're going to continue moving forward in a series we've titled Freedom Through Faith, where we've been walking verse by verse through Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. It's been a several-month process, but we're finally in the home stretch. We just have a few messages left to go. Now, the first half of this letter focused on reestablishing the truth of the gospel, what God has done for his people through the substitutionary death of his son, namely that mankind, you and I, are rescued from the tyranny of our sin, saved from damnation to hell, reconciled to God, and given eternal life through faith alone. We are justified before God by placing our faith in the finished work of Jesus apart from any works of the law, apart from any good works that we could ever do. And then these last few weeks, Paul has kind of pivoted. He's pivoted from the the theological side of things and moved to the practical. He's going, this is the gospel. And now he charges us, here's how you are to live in light of this gospel. We've seen that we are to cast aside the law as a means to earn God's favor and justification because it's powerless to do so. We've learned that though our righteousness isn't perfectly realized yet, we ought to wait and expect it hope for the righteousness to come when we see Jesus face to face. Jameson mentioned last week that we stand in this in-between, right, where I'm not the, the depraved, wretched sinner that I once was, but I'm also not the perfectly holy and blameless person that God is going to make me to be. We are positionally holy and blameless, but in this world, in this broken world, we still toil, we still make war with our sin, but there is coming a day when all will be made right. And today we're going to be talking about the nature of freedom and how we ought to live in light of it. We've talked a lot about freedom lately, but what exactly are we free from? And as those who've been emancipated, what ought we to do with our newfound freedom? What should we do with this freedom? How do we carry ourselves? It was the fall of 2010. I was beginning my freshman year of college And I felt liberated. For starters, I learned that in college, you don't have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. This was was life-changing to me. I had never experienced such free will. But more than that, I was legally an adult. I had my own car. I had no curfew. I could do whatever I wanted, whenever I wanted. Look out, world. But it gets even better. I received a grant for my schooling. And once my classes were paid for and my books were purchased, there was $1,000 left over. $1,000 that I didn't owe anybody, that I didn't work for, that I didn't have to pay back to anybody. 
So I wasn't only liberated from the tyranny of my youth, but I was also given reparations. <laughs> At least that's how I felt. Now, there's a lot of good things I could have done with said money, right? I could have made some deposits. I could have saved it. I could have invested in something. But do you think that that's what I did? Heck no. Man, when I got this money, I let my freedom flag fly. I overindulged. This manifested itself in a few ways. The usual things, right? I bought myself a new amp for my guitar. Um, I bought uh, my girlfriend at the time jewelry. Now, we've got we've to talk geography. So St. John's, Michigan. Has anybody ever been to St. John's? Is anybody familiar with the Risa building? It's like across the street from all the fast food restaurants. Okay, so my favorite exercise of freedom was curating the finest meals that a young man could dream of. I was a student at Lansing Community College, and I was going to the St. John's Extension Campus, which was located in the Risa building, uh, right across from Taco Bell, McDonald's and a Burger King, all in a row, side by side. You skip down a couple doors and you have a Wendy's. It was the best of all of the worlds. And for in between, in between classes, in my free hour, I would stop at each one of these fine establishments and craft the most excellent of meals. So I'd go to Taco Bell, right? And I, I would get a few tacos and I'd get some cinnamon twists. And then I'd go to McDonald's and I'd get a, a Coke and I'd get some French fries. I'd go to the BK Lounge and I'd get a Hershey pie. I'd go to Wendy's and I'd get burger, a burger and some spicy nugs. I, was, I really was living the dream, right? Like all of us go to these places. We don't ever want everything on the menu, right? It's like you go to McDonald's because the Coke and the fries are good. So that's how I was living my life. That's where I was depositing. That's where I was investing my money uh, at this time. And it's, it's too bad because I'm actually a rather detail-oriented person. So one day in the midst of my splurging, I thought to calculate what I was regularly spending on this feast and how many days I would have until my money ran out. And it wasn't looking great. The clock of my uninhibited liberty was counting down. Overindulgence squandered what little treasure I had in just a matter of a couple of semesters. Now, in today's text, we'll see Paul explain that we have made free because somebody else paid the way. Furthermore, he makes the case that just because we've been made free doesn't mean that we should make every provision for the flesh. No, he challenges us to invest it, not squander it. And in the end, my hope is that we will see that we've been made free, that we've been liberated to love, and that we would reorient our lives around this reality. So Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13 Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Point number one, right off the top, Paul says you have been called into freedom. Now, two things I'd like for us to briefly consider here. One is the nature of the calling. What is, what is this calling? And then the nature of the freedom. What is it that we are free from? For starters, what does it mean that God has called you? 
If I had to say it in a sentence, I would say it this way. If you're a Christian, it's not because you willed yourself to be so, but because God decreed it to be so. If you're a Christian, it's not because you willed it to be so, but because God decreed it to be so. That is to say, it's not merely because you chose to be, but because God purposed for you to be. He called you out of the darkness of your sin and into his marvelous light, into his redemption. Romans 6, 17 declares that we were all at one time slaves to sin. We were spiritually enslaved to our sin, bound to it. What happened then? How were we who were once slaves made free? How were we who were once dead in our sin made righteousness? Dead in our transgressions, totally corrupted, haters of God, enemies of God. What produced the change? This is the story of our redemption. That before the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit created the world, he chose to love you. He then creates the world and everything that exists in a world around us, he spoke into existence and that includes you and I, human beings. And this began with our first parents, our federal heads, Adam and Eve. He told them what they were to do. He told them to be fruitful and multiply, to replenish the earth, to subdue it, to take dominion over every living creature. And even more importantly, he told them what not to do. He told them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, warning them that when they did, they would surely die. Sometime thereafter, Adam and Eve disobeyed God and sin entered the world, affecting all life. And mankind falls into this perpetual rebellion. And there we stood as a human race, totally corrupted, enslaved to sin, dead in transgressions. And in our spiritual blindness, we had no ability actually to see our own sin, let alone to make it right. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, they actually ran in the opposite direction of God and they hid themselves. Yet in love, God would pursue them. He called out to them and he ultimately covered them in making an animal sacrifice for their sin, a foretaste, a picture of the perfect atonement that he would bring about one day in his son, Jesus. Sin was a worldwide epidemic. No one person was left untouched or is left untouched. Depravity abounded. Spiritual blindness spiraled out of control. God then gave his law to help his people see their sin, to see their need of the redemption that's found only in him. But instead, they took that law and they tried to use it as a means to work themselves into good favor with God. It was a futile effort. They tried to purchase their freedom by keeping the law, all the while failing to see their spiritual bankruptcy before the God of the universe. You see, they couldn't do anything to make themselves right because their accounts were grossly in the negative. And so it was for thousands of years, but God being faithful to keep his promises, he set forth his plan to rescue his people. And he would send Jesus to be our ransom, to be our substitute, right? And Jesus came into this earth born of a virgin, born under the law, and he kept the law perfectly. Every command, he never sinned once. He came and lived that righteous life that we were unable to live because we were corrupted by sin. 
And then he walked the road to Calvary. He took the mocking and the beating and ultimately the killing, the death that we deserved for our sin. This is what he has done. And we're told that if we but believe in him, that we can stand holy and blameless. Here's what functionally happened. As we stood upon the slave block bound in our sin, God looked upon you and I in our most pitiful state and declared, mine. He's mine. She's mine. And he paid the ransom in full by sending his son to serve out our sentence and to complete the work that we were powerless to carry out. This is what God has done for us. Now help me out. Which part of that process did we contribute to? The great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards once declared, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. Ouch. Romans 8.30 explains it in this way. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We see the same Greek word here used for called as we do in in Galatians 5.13 of being called into freedom. Those whom he predestined, those whom he chose to love before the dawn of creation, he also called. He called down off of the slave block, declaring them to be his own. And those whom he has called into freedom, he also justified, right? He made us righteous. He declared us not guilty. He deemed us free. And all those who are justified, he also glorified. That is made perfectly holy and blameless. Take special note how all of these things are interconnected. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. And take note that they are all in the past tense. If you're a Christian, it's precisely because God predestined, called, justified, and glorified you. Again, I ask, which part are you or I responsible for in this? We are Christians because God has declared us to be his own. He called us into freedom, paid the ransom, made us positionally holy and blameless, which will be fully realized in eternity. Now for our second question on this point, what is the freedom that you and I have been called into? What are we free from? We are free from the law and its demands because Jesus came and fulfilled all of the law's demands in our place. We are free from the consequences of our sin because Jesus died the once and for all death for our sin. And we are free from the tyranny of our sin, from the curse of death. Jesus rose from the grave, conquering its power over us. As our substitute, Jesus lived the righteous life that we failed to live. He died the death that we deserved to die and three days later rose from the grave. Christian, you and I are totally and truly liberated. You are free from the burden of the law. You are free from the consequences of your sin. You are free from sin's power over you, and you have a hope that transcends your time here on earth. You have an eternity with God ahead of you. This moment is the closest you will ever come to hell. Rejoice. You are amongst the only people on the face of the planet with this freedom, with these blessings, with this kind of unmerited favor from the Father. 
The foundation of your freedom is the finished work of Christ. So with our newfound freedom, what are we to do with ourselves? How should we live in light of this liberty, right? No fear of death, no consequence of sin eternally. Let's continue reading in Galatians 5.13, where we'll see our second point. And the second point is this. Your freedom is not license to self-indulgence. Your freedom is not license for self-indulgence. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That is to say, freedom is not anarchy. True freedom is not absent of any form of governance. Again, our freedom was purchased by God. He is the true and better master whose burdens are light and kind. And as those who have been liberated, here we see the charge, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, what are the works of the flesh? What does this phrase flesh mean? He actually describes it just a few verses later for us. And Jameson's going to be preaching that text next week. But I'd just like to quickly list them off for some context here of this flesh that he's talking about. Galatians 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying as those who've been liberated from such things, don't return to them. As a matter of fact, he says that making a practice of such things over a lifetime is evidence that we never belonged to Christ's kingdom in the first place, that we made a false profession. Earlier this week in my Bible reading, uh, I was in Ephesians 2. My Bible reading planted me in Ephesians 2, where Paul explains in great detail the state that we were in when Christ came for us and what a miraculous work he did for us in love. I'd like to read a portion of that. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says, man, we've lived according to our flesh once before. We pursued and we carried out our self-indulgent desires of our hearts, and it was bondage. It was slavery to sin. We were children of wrath. But now the two greatest words in all of Scripture, Ephesians 2.4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, so that no one may boast. But God, the two greatest words ever written, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love came for us and not only redeemed us, but he made us royalty. He has made us co-heirs with Christ. As those who've been made free, to use our freedom to satisfy our flesh is to place the yoke of slavery back upon our necks. Once again, that's what Paul is saying like a dog returning to its own vomit. To use our freedom to gratify the flesh is to climb back up on the slave block, putting out our wrists saying, chains please. To use our freedom in Christ to pursue the desires of our flesh is to return to the cross of Calvary and unhinge the nails in an attempt to get the sin back off the cross that Jesus died to set us free from. So what end To what end have we been made free if not for our own self-indulgence? Because that's clearly not the answer. Let's look again at Ephesians 2, rounding out in verse 10. After all that, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And just what is the good work that we've been liberated for? Let's look again. Galatians 5. I'll start in verse 13 again. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Point number three this morning. Your freedom is liberation to love others as yourself. In Matthew 22, we see the Pharisees inquire of Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? And he replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and prophets. Apart from the liberating power of the gospel, this isn't even possible. Dead in our sin, being enslaved to it, even our best attempts to love others were tainted by sin, by pride, by self-interest. Yet here we see we have now been called into freedom and the purpose of it is not self-indulgence, but self-sacrifice. Jesus modeled this love for us and not withholding himself to secure our rescue from sin and reconciliation to our heavenly father, right? We've already been over this. He came down from heaven to earth for us. He left a perfect place for us. He was tempted in every way that you and I are, yet did not sin. He lived the life of obedience that we, weakened by our flesh, could not. He was mocked and he was beaten and he was spit upon and he was crucified and he was killed for our sin. He bore the punishment and the wrath of your sin and of my sin. And even still today, he beckons us, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle. I am gentle and lowly in heart. 
and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the love, this is the self-sacrificing love that Jesus demonstrated to us on the cross, but still demonstrates to us today in our fickleness and in our battles with sin. Listen, Jesus, the sinless, perfect son of God, all freedom was his. He could have done whatever he wanted, yet he chose sacrificial love over selfish indulgence. He chose to love you as himself and as his ambassadors here on earth, as those who've been redeemed, he now invites us into that same work, to live in the same manner, to not live unto ourselves, but to live out for the good of our fellow man. And to love your neighbor as yourself means to esteem their needs, their dreams, and their desires as your very own. To take their sickness, to take their burdens, to take their struggles as your very own. It is for me to look at Jameson's needs as my own needs, or as Victoria's needs as my own needs to lay myself aside and to serve. Now, that takes great humility, does it not? Because at the end of the day, we're always prone to thinking about ourselves and what we need and what we want and what we desire. And as a matter of fact, we live in a world that celebrates this, right? We live in a world that celebrates doing what's right for me at any given point at the expense of everyone around me. Here's the thing, though. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less, right? It's not self-deprecating. It's not self-loathing, but it's self-sacrificing. It esteems the good of others above the good of our own selves. So on a very practical level, then, what does this love look like? How can we walk in this kind of love towards others. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, often referred to as the love chapter. And it will be a guide to us on our journey from self-indulgence to self-sacrificing love, or at least that's been my prayer for this week. 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body up to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Guys, it's it's all about how we love. And as we continue on here in 1 Corinthians 13, he lays out some very practical steps for us with this. He says that love is patient. That's to say love, it doesn't give up easily. It's relentless. It is a decided decision. I think we live in a world that makes love out to be like Hallmark movies where it's like this ooey gooey love. It's this mystical feeling. But that's not the love that we see in scripture. The love that we see in scripture starting here 
This is a determined love. This is a love that looks upon failure and goes, I still choose to love you. It's something we do. He says, love is patient. He says that love is kind. It's gentle. Love does not envy or boast. It doesn't look upon others' things and be dissatisfied because we don't have those things. Nor does love take what we have and put it in front of other people's faces. And that's what we see in the next section here. It says, it is not arrogant or rude. Furthermore, it says, love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And hear this, love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things, and love endures all things. It's hard, right? I, I can think of some of the difficult seasons in my life, and I, I can say that there's times, man, where I gave up. I can say that there's times where it's like I chose not to love because sometimes, like, the, the love that we're called to is the love of even when we're being hurt, right? Do you think that Jesus, do you think it felt good taking the lashings? Do you think it felt good taking the beatings? Do you think it felt good taking the nails? Yet he was an innocent man and he did that and he tarried and he kept moving forward, believing all things, hoping all things, knowing that there was good in the end. But how much more do we as people who still struggle with sin, people who aren't perfect, how much more than should we be faithful in carrying out these things? Verse seven just really been hitting me this week. It believes all things. It bears all things. It hopes all things and it endures all things. It's extending the benefit of the doubt. This is the love that we've been called to. To this end that we have been liberated, to love God and to love his people. And in this moment, ask yourself, how am I doing with this? If this is the kind of love that I'm called to, if God has called me into freedom, right? No longer under the consequences of the law, no longer having to be fearful of death. How am I doing with this? As we continue in Galatians 5 this morning, we'll see a strong warning of consequence for using our freedom for the flesh instead of love. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the warning. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. When each one of us uses our freedom to serve ourselves, it's anarchy. It's the book of Judges, right? Everyone's doing what's right in their own minds. So hear me now. Self-indulgence, self-interest, it will destroy any good thing. And it's to this end that Paul warns us. Self-indulgence produces the bitter fruit of division. 
Self-sacrifice is the way of love and the way of unity. So as we wrap up this morning, my, my question is simple. And it's a question that I still struggle with myself. How have you been using your freedom? Have you been living for the good of those around yourself? Or have you been living for yourself? My friends, our, our, our freedom was purchased at a high price. Jesus bled for it. Are you squandering it or investing it? Are you using it for your own good or for the good of those around you? And here's another question I think will help flesh some of that out. The question is this, who are you presently actively loving as yourself? Whose needs are you regularly putting above your own? If we're married, maybe our spouse sometimes, right? Or, or maybe, maybe your kids. As good as those things are, we can't stop there and pat ourselves on the back. As a church, we have this vision. And we'd say that we live in the labor to see Christ's kingdom come to the city of Owasso. We desire to see his rule in the hearts of men and women across the city increase until the day when we walk these streets and hear everyone speaking of the goodness of God. Wouldn't that be awesome? Now that's a big vision. That sounds like an impossible feat, right? My friends, that's a God-sized vision. There's coming a day when every knee will bow, when every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So I ask you this, why not in Owasso? Why not here? Why not now? And it's our mission that will carry us forward in accomplishing that vision. Our mission is to connect the people of Owasso to Christ's kingdom and community. But hear me now, none of that happens until we get our own household in order. None of that happens until we know how to set aside self-indulgence, self-interest, and model the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. It begins with loving our neighbor as ourselves. It begins by laying our self-interest aside. Your freedom from the demands of the law and the sin of your hands is not license for self-indulgence, but liberation to love others as yourself. This seems like an impossible task. I feel heavy this week as I was reading this. I, I, I'm quite aware that I don't measure up and I have much room to grow in this. So let's go before our Father now and ask for help. Oh Lord, you are good to us. God, we thank you that you didn't leave us on the slave block, but that you called us down off of there, that you paid our price, that you healed us of our sickness with sin, and that you crumpled its tyranny over us. We thank you that through the death, burial, and resurrection of your son, Jesus, that we can be free, that we can stand holy and blameless before you. 
the Lord, this liberty, this freedom was not given for self-indulgence. It wasn't given so we could live our lives apart from the consequence of our sin. It wasn't given for self-indulgence, but it was given for self-sacrifice. And Lord, you've invited us into this. You've invited us to be your hands and feet here in the city of Owasso. You've invited us to be ambassadors of true love, a love that is long-suffering, that believes all things, that hopes all things, that endures all things. So Lord, will you remind us of our identity and will you empower us to the mission ahead of us? Will you help us to love as you first loved us? I pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.